You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. As James said, we are starting a new preaching series today here at New Life. We, 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 our general practice is sort of alternate between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, and so we are uh, switching to the Old Testament today to the shortest book in the Old Testament, the book of Haggai. Now, I chose Haggai uh, after a lot of thought and prayer a number of weeks ago. And one reason was because it seemed to me that there were some big picture similarities between Haggai's time and our time, uh, both, both looking back on past glory days, both facing challenging uh, present days, uh, both uh, you know, dealing with a lot of political uncertainty, uh, both looking to a future that uh, may not be as, as bright as the past. Let me give you a little bit of historical context for Haggai so you know, kind of, you can kind of place it in history. Um, in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire overran the kingdom of Judah. If you remember, the, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. In the southern kingdom, that that's, was the city of Jerusalem. That was the capital city. Uh, by this time, Israel had, it was gone. It had been decimated by the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and now the Babylonians come in, 586 B.C., overrun Judah, sack Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and take a a whole lot of the population uh, into captivity. They deport them back to Babylon. Uh, They are there for 70 years. Uh, After 70 years, an edict is issued uh, that allowed them to return. Some stayed, many returned. And of course, they returned to a ruin. And, and, and this, this, these, this group of returning Jews from Babylon began the process of resettling and, and rebuilding their country. One of the first things they did was to rebuild the city walls. Uh, that is uh, largely the story uh, of the, in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, uh, the rebuilding of the city walls of Jerusalem. And they started rebuilding the temple, but they stopped. They stopped early on, and really only the foundations uh, were built, uh, maybe part of a wall or two. Uh, uh, There was an altar, but that's it, and and it stopped. Now, when you come to Haggai, as as we open up the book, it's 520 B.C., so so the, the... the people have been back now for about 20 years, roughly 20 years. And as you'll see when we read this, uh, their houses are finished, but the house of the Lord, the temple, still lies in ruins. It's still incomplete. It really has, they, they, there has been no progress on the construction, okay? 
So that's kind of where we are. Now, just before we dive in, let me just give you two quick interesting notes about Haggai, besides the fact that it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's also the, um, the most precisely dated book in the Old Testament. For a book of its size, there are a, a remarkable number of time markers. And, and the, Haggai's time markers are super precise. Uh, we know, for when, as we open up this book, uh, the, the events that are happening are happening on August 29th, 520 BC. And we know that as the action ends, at the end of Haggai, it's December 18th, 520. So all, Haggai spans a, a period of only about four months, just a little, slightly less than four months' time. And, and I bring that up because it's a graphic reminder of what we talked about last week, um, at Easter Sunday, that, that Christianity is, uh, is a historical faith, right? It's not... Uh, you read other holy books. They're often just sort of aphorisms and teachings, often wise and good, but, but sort of disconnected. They're just sort of floating there as timeless teachings, not really connected to history. That is not Christianity. Christianity is a record. It's a, it's a historical record of God working with real people, real time, and real places. And Haggai is, is, is a great demonstration of that. And then one more thing to note, because you'll, you'll, you'll see it as we read, Haggai's favorite designation for God is the Lord of hosts, uh, which is probably better translated for us, the, the Lord of the armies of heaven. That's really what, what it means. And, and so Haggai knows God and, and um, appreciates God as a God of power, a God of immense power, uh, who is, though perhaps unseen, is working behind the scenes with great power and controlling not just the grand sweep of history, not just the movement of nations and empires and and world history, but, but moving in individual lives and controlling our uh, destinies uh, as well. It is a good reminder uh, that the God we serve, the God we worship, is the God of the armies of heaven. Okay, uh, our text today is Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, and you're having trouble finding it, it's an easy one to miss. Start at the end of the Old Testament and work back, uh, and you'll find it's right there. It's almost at the very end. Uh, it's between uh, Zephaniah and Malachi, I think. Isn't that right? Uh, or Zechariah. It's between Zephaniah and Zechariah. And if you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you in the bulletin. That's the easy way to find it. I'm going to ask you one more time, if you're able, to please stand for the reading of God's word. In the second year of Darius the king, 
in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors." This is God's word. You may be seated. Before we start, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, by your spirit, I pray that you would open up this ancient book to us, that we might even today as your people live to please you and give you you give you glory and for Christ's sake we pray these things amen well I suppose if you have ever heard a sermon on Haggai it was likely in connection with a church building program pastors love to trot Haggai out uh, and to, to guilt you into supporting uh, a church building program. How can you not give to the church building program? You just got new kitchen counters. You know, that's not a legitimate use of this wonderful uh, little book. Uh, We need to read and process Haggai like all of the Old Testament Uh, the way Jesus did and the way Jesus instructed us to. And that is to read it through the lens of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. In Luke 24, Jesus uh, instructed his disciples uh, that the Old Testament was all about him and he showed how the prophets pointed forward to him. So, so we read Haggai, and we're going to read Haggai and process Haggai in that kind of Christocentric way. 
And when you do that, you come to a pretty quick realization of something important, and that is the temple, which is, of course, the subject of of the book of Haggai, right? The rebuilding of the, of the destroyed temple. Uh, the temple was always a proxy for Jesus. It was always a stand-in for Jesus. It was always a signpost pointing to Jesus. Jesus himself identified himself with the temple, Right? Remember in John, he said, you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And of course, they thought they were, he was talking about the temple, this rebuilt temple. No, he was, Jesus was saying, no, I'm the temple now. I'm the temple. In the Old Testament, the, the temple was the way God was present with his people. It was how God was Emmanuel, God with us. It was in the Old Testament, it was in the temple, first in the tabernacle and then, and then later in the temple. But when Jesus came at, at, at the appointed time, the, you, you know, the temple was really uh, obviated. God was now in the midst of his people in a new way, in a new and much better way, in a new and fulfilled way. God was present in the flesh, right? The Son of God had come. And now that Jesus, of course, lived his life, he died on the cross, he, he was raised as we celebrated last week, uh, and then 40 days after he was raised, was ascended, he ascended into heaven, and I know these, you know, we're, we're talking about dimensions of reality that are hard to imagine, but, but the, the, the Bible is clear. Jesus is alive in his body in another dimension that we, we call heaven. He's ruling over his creation. But when Jesus ascended, right, in a, in a sense, the Holy Spirit descended, right? The, the Holy Spirit came into uh, his, his people, uh, and you, if you're a believer in Jesus today, are a person filled with uh, the Holy Spirit. And now together, as followers, of, as spirit-filled followers of Jesus, we're the temple. We are Jesus' body on earth, right? Paul used that metaphor of, of the church as the body of Christ, uh, Peter talked about, you know, we're the temple, we're, and, and each of you is a living stone uh, in, in the temple. Um, it's, it's through the church of Jesus Christ, right? Made up of believing Jews, and, and now us as, as Gentiles grafted in. It's through the church now that God's Presence and power is mediated to the world. So when we read Haggai, don't think buildings, right? Yes, at, at, at a historical level in 520 BC, it's about building, rebuilding the temple. For us today, looking at it through the lens of Jesus, this is about 
us. It's about the church. It's about God being present in the church, the church being the place where, where his power and his presence, his grace and his love are mediated to the world. And that's where we work. So I've got four truths here, four points from these first 11 verses. Let me give you the titles of my points. Point number one, seeking second things first. Point number two, desperately seeking satisfaction. Point three, duties you cannot delegate. And and point four, consider your ways. So it's seeking second things first, desperately seeking satisfaction, duties you can't delegate, and consider your ways to close up. So first, seeking second things first. The Lord here diagnoses, and it's the Lord speaking through Haggai, right? Diagnoses the main problem. And the main problem was that God's people right, believers, had decided on their own, verse 2, that the time had not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's not that they were saying, we're not going to build it. It's, uh, it. What they were saying is, just not now. Now's not the time. And I have no doubt uh, that they had legitimate reasons for saying that. It, they, they weren't just being arbitrary. I'm sure they could point to a lot of good reasons in their mind why it was a good, not a good time to, to start rebuilding the temple. And historians will tell us that there were, you know, there was a lot of political unrest. Persia had taken over uh, the, the Babylonian Empire, and Persia was marching back and forth through the country, it was demanding more and more taxation. Uh, so, you know, there was there were probably good, lots of things they could point to that said, you know, now's not really a good time. Um, so that decision by itself, you know, you, you could, you could see where they, it might not be problematic, but, but it wasn't by itself, right? That decision had a context because the Lord goes on. The Lord just repeated what they're saying. The people are saying it's not the time to rebuild, and then he asks, then he goes on in verse four and says, well, okay, well, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You see, there's the context and there's the problem. It's, you know, if, if it wasn't in a good environment to build a temple, it wasn't a good environment to build houses, but they managed to do that. They had, they had built their own houses, in fact, very nice houses, paneled houses, to the exclusion of building the temple, all right? Instead of building the temple, they built their own homes. Now, these people wouldn't say it. They're believers, right? And, and they wouldn't say this, but their actions were saying it, and what their actions were saying loud and clear was that my home, my family, my comfort, my security comes before God. It's more important to me than than the matters pertaining to God and his kingdom. More important than God's uh, God's, uh, command to rebuild the temple. 
more important than the mission of Israel to be a blessing to the world. Remember, that's why Israel, God, God came to Israel uh, and, and set his love on them and his mercy on them. It was all by grace. And he says, I'm gonna bless you be, and, and make you a blessing to the world. It's gonna be through you that the, the world's gonna, gonna be blessed. But, the, but they, they basically, they just said, you know, we're putting that on old, we're, comfort, we're focusing on our homes, our families, our comforts, our securities. It'd be very easy to point our fingers at those folks and say, wow, how, how worldly could you get? Right? How secular can you be? The problem with that is that, that this, this same phenomenon is, right, it's, it's clear and present danger for, for every one of us believers today. And the reason it's such a clear and present danger, the reason it's such a risk that we would do just that, right, uh, is that the things that we put before Jesus and Jesus' kingdom priorities are good and important things. Family, my family, my home, my security, my comforts, these are... These are good things. They're legitimate things. They're legitimate goods that come from God. But Jesus warned us that uh, about making these good things the first things. Making these good blessings uh, th that which you primarily focus on. And he did it most pointedly in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? He was talking at its point in that sermon about the things that we are concerned about, our food, our clothes, our, our homes. And, and, and Jesus said, listen, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, right? All these other things that you're tempted to seek first, those will be added to you. Matthew 6.33. So what we're seeing here, right, in Haggai and we're seeing in Jesus is a call. There is a call on you and me as people of God, as people of Jesus to, to, a, to a radically different priority structure than the world would, would press us into. Okay? That's the first point. Seeking Second things first. Second, desperately seeking satisfaction. And this is related. And I'll show you in a minute how it's related to the first one about seeking second things first. I was uh, reading Vanity Fair again. I, I've subscribed to Vanity Fair. Uh, it's actually a, a great insight into uh, our culture and the world and how, how um, people outside the church think. And this month's Vanity Fair has a fascinating article that's subtitled Inside the Dark Biohacked Heart of Silicon Valley. And uh, I'll just read you a few lines. Now remember, this is written from a non-religious perspective. It's, Vanity Fair tends to be, you know, critical, generally critical of Christianity, but it's... Um, 
So this is from an unbeliever's perspective. It says, over the past decade, Silicon Valley tech rich have, have come to be seen almost as deities. They make up almost half of the 20 richest people on the planet, according to Forbes, and are quoted, lauded, and defended by legions of fans as if they were some sort of doctrinal beings, saints with iPhones. At the top are people like Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, and Elon Musk, who have gone from being like you and me to being the richest and most powerful people on earth. But now listen to this sentence. But no matter how much money they make, how many people use their platforms or buy their products, or how high they are on any given list, it's never enough. Then the article goes on and describes sort of the driven, unhappy lives of of these Silicon Valley rich, and, and it ends with this line, they're constantly at war with their own demons about how they got to this rare place, terrified that they might lose their standing, and riddled with the angst of imposter syndrome or worse. You know, you read Vanity Fair, April 2021, and it sounds like Haggai 1, 520 B.C., Same thing going on in Haggai's day. Look at God's uh, diagnosis here, verse six. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. God has a very sort of direct way of putting things, doesn't he? This is what happens when you put second things first. You may get those things, you may get those things, but in a sense, you don't really get them. They, they get you. They, they, they get you in their grasp and they leave you always wanting more. These things, as good as necessary as they are, and I'm not, believe me, I, I'm a family guy. I like my house. I like my comforts. I like my securities. There's nothing wrong with that. But the, but the point is that they don't provide lasting security, lasting satisfaction. They're not a sufficient foundation for a, a human life that is created in the image of God. And I want to ask the question, why? Why, why, why isn't that enough? Why do these things not satisfy? Why, if you make it your first priority to have a, you know, a bigger and better home, to have a solid family, to, to have creature comforts, to have you know, good income, why, if you make that your working first priority, why don't they satisfy? Why do they leave you empty? Why are they never enough? You might be surprised at the answer, but God, but, but God gives us the answer here. Very directly. Look at verse nine. He sort of summarizes. He says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, 
I blew it away. And then God asks the question, why? You may be asking, why did I blow it away? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. You see, God's really, in effect, laying out a principle here. Um, And the principle is, if you stop working for God, God will guarantee that nothing will work for you. If you stop working for God, God will see to it. He will guarantee that nothing will work for you. It's not just the reality that, that, that things wear out and break, that people die that taxes and inflation take your money. It's much more personal than that. What Haggai tells you here is that the God of the armies of of heaven is actually behind the scenes of your life guaranteeing if you are are edging over to, to... to making those things a priority, he's going to work to guarantee that you won't find satisfaction in those good things that are less than himself. And you might, you might f- feel like Taylor Swift, right, and ask the question, why are you being so mean? But that's not God being mean. It's not God being arbitrary. It's God being gracious and merciful. It's God wanting you to have the very best, and the very best is Jesus. And like the good father he is, he's not going to let you as his child settle for second best. Jesus will never let you down. Jesus will always satisfy you. Jesus will always be there and be with you even through death and out onto the other side. The home won't. The job won't. And friends, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a prophet, um, for sure. But let me suggest that as I look at what's been happening to our country and really to the whole world in the last year or so, um, that this is this may be what 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 is behind it. That that God is is actively in the process behind the scenes, taking away comforts, taking away securities, taking away health. Maybe because we've been seeking those things at the expense of Him. Maybe functionally our lives have made those our first priority. I think we can see what's been happening over the last year or so as God's gracious corrective. just, Just in my own, just to let you in on my own sort of introspection on these things, I I I can see honestly say that I'm learning that I probably did put too much comfort, uh, too much emphasis on, on things like comfort and security and, and, and um, you know, job and what, the opinion of others. Um, and I'm learning through these times that, that my real comfort and security is locked up in my relationship with Jesus. 
You could take a lot away from me, but if I have Jesus, and if Jesus has me, I'm okay. It's not my relationship to the government. It's not where I worship. It's not how good I feel or how lousy I feel. As we, as we just got finished singing, right? God's grace is enough. Third, duties you can't delegate. When he first starts talking, Haggai's talking to the leaders, right? He's talking to the governor, Zerubbabel, and he's talking to the high priest, Joshua. But then he turns, and for the rest of the text, he's talking to the people, right? And it's, it's really God talking to the people through Haggai. And, and in verse 8, God's word through Haggai to the people is go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Okay, remember what I said. It's, it, let's not think buildings. That's what it was for them. But for us, the message is clear. The work of building up the body of Christ made up of you, not a building. I mean, that's one good thing about meeting outside, right? We've, it, it, is, it is, is perhaps demystified church buildings. But the work of building up the body of Christ, the, the, his temple, the, of his body on earth, by evangelism, discipleship, shepherding, teaching, caring, serving, pleasing the Lord, glorifying the Lord, is not just a call on leaders, it's a call on the people. It's your work. You, as an individual believer in Jesus Christ, are called to this work. It's not work you can delegate. And we, we are living in an age where, there, where Christians are probably most tempted at any time other than history to delegate all the work to me and the rest of the pastors, right? We live in a hyper busy age. I know that. And technology hasn't helped, right? It's supposed to be a labor saving device. It's a ball and chain. You can't go on vacation without people, you know, DMing you. Hey, what? We've gotten used to delegating all kinds of work, right? We've got life coaches, business coaches, wedding planners, nannies, gardeners, dog walkers, financial managers, household consultants, elder care managers. I mean, that's just the, that's just the beginning of the list. But the work of the church, right? Mediating the power and the presence and the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God to your brothers and sisters here in the church and to your neighbors outside the church is a work that cannot be delegated. That's your job. This is not a saving question, right? You are saved by faith in Jesus' work for good works. Ephesians 2. We are saved by faith 
for work. I know there's a tendency in, in the church as, in, as elsewhere to delegate it to the paid professionals. Friends, don't do that. We're called to go out. It's, it's the consistent pattern. God comes to Abraham. Abraham, I've chosen you. You're my chosen man. I'm gonna bless you. Now get out of here. Go out. Where? I'll show you. But just leave. Go. Out. <laughs> That's the pattern. I remember graphically seeing it in our first short-term missions trip here at New Life. I think it was 2004 uh, when we went to the Philippines. Um, and I hope that we're, we're going to, you know, once this, we get through this COVID thing and travel gets better and we're, we're going to do some short-term mission trips, and I, I want to encourage you to go on them because there's nothing like seeing. You know, it's a way we go out. And when we were in the Philippines, we saw the results of people going out. There were Christians in the Philippines going out, leaving their homes, leaving the comfort and security of their homes, going to the garbage dumps and taking little girls home that were abandoned on garbage dumps. I remember a little girl that didn't have a name. Her name was Gurley. They think, they, they called her Gurley. They think she was eight years old. She looked like a four-year-old. These Christians went out, walked on the garbage dumps, found her, brought her home, brought her into the family, brought her into the church. I mean, it's just one small thing. But, a, you know, this is what we need to be doing. And the Lord has called you to it because you can do things that the pastors can't do, right? You can talk to people we can't get to, we'll never get to. You can confront suffering and need in ways that we can't because you have suffered in particular ways that you're, you're equipped to minister. There are demons you can deal with because you've dealt with them. Duties we can't delegate. And finally, fourth, consider your ways. Um, that's not my language, of course. That's, that's God. Those are God's words speaking through Haggai. He says it twice. And in Hebrew, you understand the importance of repetition, right? That's emphasis. He says it once in verse five and again in verse seven. Consider your ways. Look into your own heart and life. Don't look into someone else's heart and life. Too much of that going on. And it's too easy to hear a sermon like this and go, boy, I know just the person that should hear this sermon. Can't wait to get home and forward it to them. Resist that temptation. Because this is for you. And it's for me. Examine your heart. God's saying, consider your ways. How are you doing? How are you doing in this priority thing? How are, you, how are you doing with the hard work of making pleasing and glorifying Jesus the, your top priority among all the other things you have to do? No one said it's easy. Right? This isn't a call to you know, take a vow of poverty, become a monk, become a hermit, and, and dedic 
right? It's a call to wise priority making and balance. You don't neglect your family, but you make God number one. You make his kingdom first. It's not easy. It's one of the reasons why the church is important. We're here to help each other in that process, pray with one another, just walk with each other in that difficult, difficult process. But you know, you can't consider your ways in a vacuum. I mean, when God says consider your ways, you have to consider it against your ways against something, right? You have to sort of measure them against a benchmark. And I would say to you, you can't consider your ways until you consider, unless you also consider the Lord's ways. And when you consider the Lord's ways, what you realize, you realize two things right off the bat that are super important. You realize that you have forgiveness for all the ways you have failed in your priorities. You have forgiveness. And you have the grace and the strength to get up and persevere to live for Jesus in a way that pleases and glorifies him, that manifests his presence and power to the world. You know, think about Jesus. His, his priorities were always right. He, he, his priority was to obey his father. And in obeying his father, he was to redeem the people that, that the, his father had given him. And he never deviated from those priorities. He never moved off of them, even when it was hard. And he didn't allow himself to get distracted. He never put his work on hold like the people in Jerusalem did with the temple. He set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he did. He got up from praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, let's go. As he walked to the cross and endured the cross, he was doing it for the joy that was set before him, which was you, your redemption, the promise of him having you with him in abundant eternal life. Jesus' death on the cross guarantees forgiveness for the failures of your priorities. And I need that forgiveness because when you consider your ways, friend, if, if you're at all honest and you really do this honestly, you're going you're gonna to come up short. And when you do that, when you realize you've fallen short, you've failed in so many ways to put Jesus first and glorify him. I, you, listen, you don't wallow in guilt. You don't stay, you don't wallow in guilt. You don't stay in shame. Jesus, the cross is the, says that Jesus has compassion on you. He's already forgiven you. So consider your ways, then run to the cross, receive his forgiveness. But as you go to the cross, remember that you're also going to be strengthened. Because there on the cross is God's son making you a priority at the cost of his own life. And the Holy Spirit uses that amazing reality that gospel reality to inspire you, to move you out, to go out and to please him in your priorities, to please him in your actions, and to please him in your words. And it's my prayer as a, 
as a pastor and a fellow traveler with you in this adventure of faith, that we, with a new life, would be, would, be, would be a church of people doing just that, just those things. Okay? Amen? Let's pray. Actually, let's not pray for a second. Let's pray together. Let's, let's have a time of... Um, this, this is, is a partic- sermon that would be particularly appropriate to have sort of a silent time of personal prayer and reflection since the Lord is asking us here in his word to consider our ways. So let's take two minutes and, and go, go to the Lord in prayer consider, and consider your ways, okay? And, uh, and then I'll close this in prayer in just a couple of minutes. God, I thank you that Jesus is uh, the perfect priority keeper for us. I thank you that in him we have forgiveness for our failures. I thank you that in him we have grace and power to go out and be a blessing to our brothers and sisters and to our neighbors. Go with us, Father, by your Spirit. May we please and glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.